I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Epistle of Peter chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 through 6. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you have given us to once again assemble together as believers to sing praises to your name, to delight ourselves in you, to feast upon who you are and to be fed spiritually by your presence as we adore our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time of singing that we've been able to have. And Father, as we enter in now to worshiping you through the word, we pray, Father, that you would speak through your word to our hearts, to our souls, to our minds, to our wills. And Father, that you would accomplish your purpose, that you would glorify yourself, that you would glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in us pray that you will give me the words to speak and all of us the ears to hear and father the will to obey we ask in jesus name amen i want to title this message born again to a living hope born again to a living hope what is one of the most joyful events that happens in our life Is it not when a baby is born into this world? I mean, a baby being born at 24 weeks. Scary, amazing, wonderful. But joy, the joy that overflows when a a life comes out of the womb and cries and breathes and begins to, to, to grow outside of the womb. It is one of the most joyful events, uh, one of the most joyful things to be a part of in your life. Even though this baby is born into a world of sin, and this baby is born with a sinful nature, 
And even though the world in which this baby is born into is, is a world of sin and evil and corruption and wickedness and suffering. But despite all that, it doesn't rob us of the great joy of this baby being born into the world. Even though, even though we know this baby is born with a sinful nature and this baby will show forth that sinful nature soon enough. Yet, that doesn't rob us of the great joy that we have in when this baby is born into the world. thought about it this week, going back and thinking about Emma being born and Shiloh being born and Eli being born and Chloe being born and what great joy there was in my heart when each one of them came out of the womb and, and, and cried and you got to hold that that child and you got to, to see the, the life there and you got to see uh, yourself in that child and, and you had just such wonderful joy in, in what this child would be like. So new life is a precious thing to behold and to celebrate. And we should always rejoice, rejoice in the birth of children and we should always weep when those are taken from us. But yet, we should also rejoice that even though they're taken from us, yet they go to God. And that is a much greater thing. So some of our greatest joys in life are, are through the birth, through children being born and experiencing that. We live in a world that is full of sin, darkness, evil, corruption, and suffering, but God has given us the gift of life that gives us great joy even in the midst of this darkness. Peter is writing this letter to Christians who are living in the midst of an evil culture, a pagan culture. And they are suffering because of their faith. Because of their belief and trust in Jesus Christ. Because of their obedience to the words of Christ and to the words of the apostles. They're being persecuted. They're suffering because of that. And so Peter writes them this letter and, and is trying to encourage them and remind them of the truth. Peter reminds them that they are but strangers and pilgrims in this world. And that their hope does not rest in earthly things, but rather in spiritual realities. He started out by encouraging them on the basis, the foundation of their hope, which is in the work of the triune God. The basis of your hope lies in the work of the Trinity. God the Father chose you. God the Spirit separates you and applies the merits of Christ to you. And Jesus Christ died for you and shed his blood for you and it cleanses you of all your sins. That is the foundation of your hope. Now, after doing that, reminding them of their hope and their identity, Peter now breaks out into praise because of the great love and mercy of God through Jesus Christ. He praises God for the work of the Spirit of God in the soul of the believer. He reminds them to rejoice in their spiritual 
life, even when their earthly life is hard. I mean, what kind of message do you want to give to someone who is suffering? A message of joy, a message of peace, a message of hope, of a sure and steadfast hope. So I believe that the one main purpose of this text of Scripture is that Peter wanted to help believers rejoice in the wonderful work of the new birth in them and to be encouraged by it to live a life of faith and hope through suffering for the glory of God. Rejoice in the wonderful work of the new birth in them and to be encouraged by it to live a life of faith and hope through suffering for the glory of God. And that's our proposition here this morning is that God wants you to rejoice in his great mercy in causing you to be born again, having a new birth, a spiritual birth to a living hope and for you to remember What God is doing in you and what he has secured for you as you suffer for Christ for the glory of God. So rejoice in what God has done. Remember what he's doing in you and what he's done, what he's going to do for you. And that will lead you to praise even in the midst of suffering for the glory of God. So today we're going to consider six realities that we see in this text of scripture Six realities about the new birth in the soul of the believer. Six realities. If you have been born again, born from above, these are six realities that are true of your life, that are true of your soul. And they should lead lead to praise of God. Number one, the new birth elicits praise to God. He starts out here in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is breaking out into praise. He's breaking out into adoration of God for the work that he has done. To be blessed in this text, in this this word that's used, is not like the blessed that we find in the Sermon of the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's not the same word. This is a word that's used only of God. It means to be well spoken of. It means to be worthy of praise. It is only used of God and Jesus Christ. Showing the Godhead is worthy of all our commitment. Indeed, only God is inherently praiseworthy, deserving every good acknowledgement. When we say blessed be God, we're saying praises be to God because he is worthy only to receive blessing and honor and power and glory. For he has created all things and all things were created for his glory. And when we think about what the triune God has done in our salvation and when we think about what has happened in the new birth, it should lead us to praise the everlasting God. And give him all the glory. Peter is breaking out in praise to God. Our theology, what we understand of God, our study of God should always lead us to doxology, which is praise to God. 
Theology should always lead to doxology. We see this in Paul's letters. Several examples we could give. Ephesians 1.3, he says almost the exact same thing as Peter does. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amazing. In Romans, he breaks out into praise. In chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. When you, when you hear the truth in God's word and when you read the truth in God's word, does it stir up within you praises? We love to sing the doxology because the doxology is a response to what we've heard and understand and know about God. And so we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, you heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Because He's worthy of praise. Because of what He's done. Because of who He is. This praise is to God the Father. You should rejoice that the God of all the universe, the Creator of heaven and earth, the One who created it all and sustains it all with the power of His might, He's your Father. He relates to you as Father, And you're his child. And that should lead you to praise him because he has adopted you as his son and as his daughter. He has brought you into his family and he has given you all the blessings of the family. And he's going to go on to talk about that. All the blessings. Paul said all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ are yours. And so rejoice that he's your father today. And he says, he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that that phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, is used about 33 times in the New Testament. And it's it's not just a name. It has meaning and it has power, right? Jesus' name, Jesus' name means Savior, right? He's the Savior. Lord means He's the ruler over all things. And Christ means anointed one, the Messiah. He is the Messiah who is the Savior who rose from the dead. And therefore, he is Lord over all creation. Lord over your life. He owns everything. He owns you. John Piper said the the purpose or goal of this passage is stated right up front. And then again at the end of it in verse 6. It is praise or worship to God, wherein you do greatly rejoice. He's praising God. He wants you to praise God. He wanted them to rejoice in God. Another writer said, when theology does not begin and end with doxology, it becomes merely an abstract intellectual exercise in which the heart is not engaged and the soul is not properly moved. It's just like reading another book. You enjoy it. It's a good mental exercise. But if your heart and your soul is not moved, then there is no spiritual life there. Another writer said, The way to make Christians steadfast in the truth, cheerful under sufferings for it, and thriving in holiness, is to have their hearts brought to a praising disposition. 
Do you have a praising disposition that no matter whether things are going well or things are going bad in your eyes, whether you're suffering or it's in a time of peace, that you always have a praising disposition like Job. He gives, we praise his name. He takes away, we praise his name. When he was blessing me abundantly, I was thankful for it all, and I was worshiping him, I was praying, I was giving sacrifice. When he took it all away, I did the same exact thing. Even though it hurt, even though there was pain, all of that true, yes. But he still bowed down and worshiped. Still still spent time in prayer and thanksgiving to God. So what about you in your life? This new birth that God has worked in you. Is it eliciting praise throughout your day? Praise as you wake up in the morning. Praise as you're going throughout the day. Praise when you lay your head down at night. Praise when you come to the house of God. We should be people of praise. People of blessing. God all the time. You know, this was something in the Jewish culture that was, that was prevalent. Every time they met together, every time that they had a meal, they said, Blessed are you, O oh, oh Lord, creator of the universe. You have given us everything. So they were always blessing and praising God. And sometimes because of how much that we have, how much we've been blessed here and how prosperous we are, we forget as Americans to bless God for life. For breath. For the most simplest of things. As we should praise him for all the things that we have. But most of all we should be praising him and blessing him. For this spiritual life. This new birth. And the spiritual realities. That are a result of this. So we need to ask God to cultivate in us. A disposition of praise. And that will help us. When we suffer for Christ. To still have that same kind of disposition like Paul and like Peter had when they were thrown into prison. It says that they didn't murmur and complain about being thrown into prison. It says that at midnight they sang praises to God, blessed Him, that they were counted worthy to suffer for Him. That's a praising disposition. And that's what He's encouraging the saints with here. And that's what God is encouraging you with here. Whatever you're going through, whether it's suffering for Christ as a Christian or whether it's just suffering in general, God wants you, even in the midst of that, to still praise His name, still bless His name, still acknowledge His goodness in your life. Still sing, the Lord has been so good to me, I want to sing His praise. That's not based on your circumstances. That's based on who God is and what He's done in you. And so that can be done at all times. Number two. Second reality, the new birth extols the mercy of God. The mercy of God. It says, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope or a living hope. A hope that is living. When you're born again and when you're given spiritual life, your, your disposition changes and your glorying changes. You no longer want to glorify yourself. And you no longer, you, you, it's no longer what, what have I done. Now everything changes to what has God done? 
Look what God has done in my life. Look at how He has changed me. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. I once was enslaved to sin, but now I'm the slave of Christ and I'm free. I've been given liberty to serve Christ and to love Christ. This new birth bubbles up within you. You want to extol the mercy of God. And it's really, I think, one of the main evidences of a born-again believer that you see is that they are pointing everything to God in what He has done and that it's based on His mercy and not according to their works or their goodness. Which, according to His abundant mercy, He hath begotten us again into a lively hope. We know the word here for mercy means pity or compassion. It means kindness or goodwill toward the miserable and afflicted, joined with a desire to relieve them. God had goodwill toward you. He had pity upon you. He had compassion upon you to not only deliver you out of your sinful condition, but also bless you with every spiritual blessing and give you an inheritance. That's mercy. He wanted, he had a desire to relieve you out of the miry pit that you were in and rescue you out of that and put you in, on a firm foundation. And he says, not only do we extol the mercy of God, but Peter says, abundant mercy, abundant mercy, overflowing mercy. Means much, many, often, multitudinous, plenteous. God is plenteous in mercy, right? That's who He is, that's His name. God who is plenteous in mercy and in grace and in compassion. This is what leads to blessing, this is what leads to praise. Thinking about God's goodwill toward us who were miserable and afflicted and who could do nothing to save ourselves, nothing to change our condition, but God who is rich in mercy. Because of his great love wherewith he loved us, he saved us by grace through Christ. Hath begotten us again. That's the key word here in the text. All this is, is, is either flowing from this praise to God. It has a cause, which is the mercy of God. It has, it has a reason. It has a purpose. But all of it's talking about this, us being begotten again. And this is a precious word to Peter. He actually alone uses this particular word here. But it goes back to what Jesus taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Except a man be born again, except a woman be born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. They cannot enter the kingdom of God. Except one be born from heaven... Born from above, which is what the word means. To have a second birth. Our birth into this world is a joyous occasion. But our birth into the kingdom is a much more joyous occasion. And I'm going to tell you this, based on what he goes on to say. Our death is a much more joyous occasion. 
you're given the earnest of your inheritance now, but when you die, you will receive the full possession of your inheritance. Death is a release from this sinful nature into uninhibited glory. So your death is going to be the greatest day of your life. God has caused us to be born again. That's what it means. He has caused us to be born again. We didn't cause ourselves to be born again. No, it's God. We're extolling His mercy. You gave us new birth. You birthed us into your kingdom. Ephesians 2.1 And you hath He quickened. He made you alive who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Right? It was God who gave life. It was God who had implanted the seed. It was God who borned us from heaven, gave us spiritual life, gave us spiritual birth. And this is according to the, or because of, the abundant mercy of God. The abundant mercy of God. R.C. Sproul said, God from all eternity decrees those to whom he will give the gift of faith, which is the fruit of regeneration, not the cause of it. Faith is the fruit of regeneration, not the cause of it. The mercy of God is the cause of regeneration. Peter would use this word again, and we'll look at this later uh, in our series in verse 23. He says, being born again, being born from above, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. That's what you've been born again by. Not some money. You You didn't enter the kingdom because you paid money. You didn't enter into the kingdom because you walked down the aisle. You didn't enter into the kingdom because you made a profession of faith. You entered into the kingdom because God, the living word, Jesus, the living word, breathed spiritual life into your heart and soul. And he said, arise, my love. He said, come out of the the grave, Lazarus. And you came forth. And your life was changed. Paul put it this way in Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Listen to the terminology. It's the same as Peter. Which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So he says the same thing. It's because of the abundant mercy of God that he has saved us. Not according to our works, not according to our righteousness, not according to any of that. Simply his mercy. This new birth in you causes you to give praise to God and extol the mercy of God. His abundant mercy in your life. And we ought to be doing this all of the time. All of the time. Giving giving praise and extolling the mercy of God. Number three. What does this lead to? We've seen that it leads to praise. And we've seen that it's caused by the mercy of God. But what does this new birth lead to? Number three, the new birth engenders a living hope. A living hope. A lively hope. Unto 
a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we've talked about this word hope already, but it's an important word to Peter. This word hope means expectation, trust, confidence, to anticipate, welcome expectation of what is sure and certain. And this word, this word living or lively is a verb in this case. And so it is saying a hope that is living, is active. This is something God has placed in you and it's alive and it's living in it and, and you're seeing the effects of it by the way you talk, by the way you live, by the way you work and parent, by the way you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are seeing a lively hope, a hope that is alive, that is working out in your life. It is in the present tense and it is in the active voice. <laughs> it is being done in you. It is bubbling up within you. We do not have a dead hope, but rather a living hope. Romans 8.24, Paul says, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is, not see- but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why doth he yet hope for? Then he would say later in Romans 12, 12, we are to rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and continuing instant in prayer. What is your hope in? We talked about this in our last message. What's the basis of your hope? What are you hoping in as you live from day to day? Because if your hope is in money, if your hope is in Government, if your hope is in any of those things, that hope can die. I mean, it can be great when those things are serving its purpose and for you and going well. But when those things go the other way and crash, your hope will crash. Your hope will be dead in those things. But the hope that we have that's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is a living hope that never dies. No matter what happens in this life, no matter what's going on in your life, it is always a living hope. And so we should be exercising that in our lives, showing that, voicing that. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the world to come. Our hope is not in ourselves, in our works, in our goodness. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Number four, the new birth is Effected through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He says, according to his abundant mercy, he has given us this new birth unto a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You wouldn't have a new birth. You wouldn't have a living hope. You wouldn't have an inheritance that he goes on to talk about without Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. Piper says the cause of the new birth is God's great mercy. The means of the new birth is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the goal of the new birth is a living hope. And so we would have no new birth and consequently no living hope if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. All of our faith and all of our hope lies in the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. It's worthless. And if Christ be not raised, verse 17, your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sins. You have no hope. No hope of eternal life. No hope of an eternal inheritance. All you'll have to pay God is the debt of your sin. And the only thing that, the only way you're going to be able to pay the debt of your sin is through an eternity in hell. And so if Christ was not raised from the dead, then you're in your sins. And he goes on to say this, if in this life only you have hope, then you are of all men and all women most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that sleep. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, guaranteeing your salvation and guaranteeing that even though you die, if you are in him, you also will be raised to incorruption. Your hope lies in the absolute fact that Jesus is alive and sits at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19. Which hope, which surety we have as an anchor for the soul. Both sure and steadfast and which enters into that within the veil. That's Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As king of kings and lord of lords. Guaranteeing. Your salvation, guaranteeing your new birth, guaranteeing your living hope, and guaranteeing your inheritance as one of his. Praise Jesus Christ for his work of salvation in you. Praise him for him descending and condescending. Praise him for taking on the form of a servant. And being made in the likeness of humanity. Praise Him for keeping the law perfectly for you. Because you could not. Praise Him for suffering the wrath of eternal God in your stead so you don't have to. Thank Him and praise Him for being vindicated and being raised from the dead for your justification. Thank Him for ascending And sitting down and ruling and reigning so that you can know without a shadow of a doubt your inheritance is safe and secure. Number five, the new birth ensures, ensures your eternal inheritance. It says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away reserved in heaven for you. Boy, do you have some good news here this morning. Jesus Christ not only paid the penalty for your sin, not only did He rise again from the dead for your justification, not only does the Holy Spirit quicken you and give you life and apply the merits of Jesus Christ to your account, but Jesus Christ has secured for you an eternal inheritance. You will live forever with Him in glory without sin. 
You will behold His face for all eternity. You will delight in His presence for all eternity. You will remember the sufferings of life no more. And the sufferings of this life are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in you. An inheritance. This is a heritage. A possession viewed in one sense as present and another as future. An heir. The portion God assigns. Now, we would love, we would love it if we received an earthly inheritance from our father, from a distant relative. And what that means is they're going to give you what they what they owned, right? Whether it was land, a house, or, or, or resources, money, whatever. They give that to you, and you have the promise of the inheritance, which says when they die or when something happens, you will get this inheritance. I'm telling you it's yours, but you don't have it yet. But then when it, when it happens, you're given that, that, that inheritance, and everything that belonged to them now belongs to you. So it's your home, it's your land, it's your money. And you get to enjoy it for as long as you have it. You have something greater than that. I'm not going to get that. I'm just going to be honest. I don't think I'm going to get that. But that's okay. I don't need that. I want to leave an inheritance for my children and for my children's children. If I can, they might not get that either. Just to be honest. But there is something more precious, there is something more valuable that we should rejoice in over an earthly inheritance. And in comparison, when you put it on the scales, an earthly inheritance means nothing compared to an eternal inheritance. Because as he goes on to describe this eternal inheritance, the opposite of, can be said of an earthly inheritance. So he describes this in three negative ways, right? This inheritance. Incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. Right? But what can you say about earthly inheritance? Corruptible. Defiled. It can be. Certainly going to fade away at some point. Right? So that's why your hope isn't in those things. Now, is there, is there benefit and value in those things? Yes. Should we strive to do the best we can to leave that for our future generations? I think so. I think that's being a wise and, and a steward of what God has given you, if He has blessed you with that. He's not going to bless everybody with that. But there is a spiritual, spiritual heritage, which Brady's talking about, that is much more important that we pass down to the future generations. We can't give them this new birth, but we can give them the truth. We can give them the principles that if God does give them this new birth, it will help them, it will equip them to live a life that will honor Him. Sproul says, Peter is using family language. God the Father, through His Son, Jesus Christ. God has adopted you into His family Because of his son, he's adopted you into this family. And this son has purchased for you an inheritance, which God the Father is giving you 
He's giving you the down payment of it, which is the new birth. The earnest of our inheritance, Paul says in Ephesians. The earnest of our inheritance. The down payment of of what we're going to be possessing. But you're going to get the full possession of it. The full inheritance one day. And why is that? He says, because this inheritance, unlike earthly inheritance, is incorruptible, undefiled, and that fades not away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. No one can touch it. God has it in His hands, and no one can get in there. This is exciting. This is what gives you joy. This is what leads to praise. This is what's going to help you be faithful in the midst of suffering. To remember, you are a stranger and a pilgrim here, but you are a citizen of heaven. You are an heir of God and a joint heir of Jesus Christ. That means that everything that belongs to God belongs to you. Can you fathom that here this morning? I can't fathom that. I'm excited about it. I rejoice in it. I want to know more about it. But I can't fathom this. Incorruptible means imperishable, undecaying, immortal, not liable to corruption or decay. Sproul said it cannot be destroyed. It means that only that not only that it will not be corrupted, but that it cannot be corrupted. Undefiled means untainted, free from contamination. He says it is not dirty money. It has been won through perfect purity and is so protected by God in heaven that nothing can ever spoil or defile it. We are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Unfading means enduring, perennial, perpetual, It does not fade away because it cannot fade away. And then reserved in heaven for you. This word reserved means to be watched over, to guard, or to keep. Now here's the great news. You've been given this inheritance. You're in possession. You're in partial possession of it now. Being given to you by the new birth. It's in heaven with God. Nothing can get to it. And it is being guarded and watched by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, but he goes on to say, you're being kept for that inheritance. He's keeping that inheritance for you and you're being kept for that inheritance. Revelation 21, 27 says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Hebrews 9, 15, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, That by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions which were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal life. Jesus is going to say to you, if you are one of these that have been given the new birth, 
one of these that have been given this inheritance. Then the king shall say to them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Receive your inheritance. And enjoy it. Nisbet says this is a matchless inheritance. It has nothing in itself which inclines it toward any decay. It can admit nothing from without to stain the beauty and excellency of it. It remains to all eternity in its primitive and native luster. All which are sweetened by this that it is safely kept for the regenerate in a place above all hazard. It's perfect. Nothing is it's, it's always going to be perfect. And God is keeping this for you. Are you rejoicing in your eternal inheritance? Can someone look at your life and the way that you're living and say, there's something different. Something different about them. They're talking about heaven. They're, they're talking about an eternal home. They're talking about something that goes beyond this life. They have hope. That even though that they've had loss, even though they're in the midst of trials and tribulations, yet they're joyful. How can this be? Why is this? Lastly, the new birth equips you with power to live a life of faith that perseveres to the end. The new birth equips you with power. To live a life of faith that preserves, that perseveres to the end. Now God can say, alright, this is what I've done. I've chosen you. Jesus Christ came and he died for you. He rose again for your justification. The Spirit quick, quickens you and makes you alive and applies the merits of Jesus Christ to your account. You have an eternal home in the heavens that's awaiting you. Now all you just got to do is you just got to get there. Wouldn't that just destroy the whole thing? What kind of hope would there be, even in all those glorious things, if it was still up to you in order to get there to your eternal inheritance? I mean, it sounds wonderful, and we would say in today's vernacular, I hope we get there, I hope I get there, I hope they get there. We know we're going to get there. Not because of anything in us, but because of God in us. The new birth equips you with power. He says, unto an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready, ready, ready to be revealed in the last time. God is ready to give you the inheritance. He's ready to reveal His glory in you. He's just waiting. Who are kept. This means to be guarded, to be kept as by a military guard, to actively display whatever defensive and offensive means are necessary to guard. God has equipped you through the new birth with faith and hope and love and all the fruits of the Spirit that are your offensive and defensive weapons that prevents anything from stealing your eternal inheritance. 
Now they might wound, they might scar, they, they, they might mount an offense, and, they, and there might be little skirmishes that they win, but they cannot win the war. Satan has been defeated. Satan has been chained. And you, you've already won the war. You've just got to continue to fight the battle. But God is keeping you. God is preserving you. God is giving you His power so that you can overcome. So that even when you fall down, He gets you back up. And He gives you strength to go on your way. Though a righteous man falls seven times, yet he will get back up and go on his way. Why? Because God is moving him. God is motivating him. God is strengthening him. What have you been equipped with? Power. Sometimes, yes, we are weak in the flesh. Yes, we, we have a, a, a nature that we have to deal with that's prone to sin. But sometimes we do not realize that the power of the Holy Spirit is within you. And that's why Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Which meant, I can be in prison, chained in bonds, and I can praise God and I can worship God. Because his power is within me, no matter where I'm at. Who are kept by the power. What is the instrument? God is the source. But what is the instrument? Faith. Faith is the instrument. God has given you the gift of faith. And it is through this faith that his power flows in order for you to be obedient. To overcome sin, to overcome temptation, to be able to bear up under trials. He has given you hope to believe in that which is to come. And he has given you faith, which is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Belief is a trust, a confidence, and a persuasion. In what? In God's salvation. Salvation means deliverance, prosperity, preservation. God's rescue, which delivers believers out of destruction and into His safety. Jesus said that you are in His hand and that He is in the Father's hand and no one can pluck you out of the Father's hand. You're secure. You will persevere because you are preserved. That's why we believe in perseverance. Not because of anything in us, but because we are preserved in God. And those that are preserved in God will finally persevere to the end. He says, unto salvation. Salvation begins when God elected us before the foundation of the world. The new birth applies that salvation and the Spirit is working out that salvation in your life. And when you die, you're going to receive the fullness of that salvation in glory for all eternity. 
That is the work of salvation. Salvation is not a one-time thing. So you can talk about the beginning of your salvation or the end of your salvation, but it's all salvation. This inheritance is being kept by God. Piper says, faith is God's instrument, but it is still God's power and God doing the keeping. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus in two good works. Sproul said the same power that keeps the inheritance reserved for us is the power that keeps us reserved for the inheritance. One last quote, and this is a long one, so just listen, be prepared. The saints' perseverance does not depend upon their own free will or upon their right use of the grace already bestowed upon them, but upon the power of God engaged to be forthcoming for them and constantly employed in their through-bearing by enabling them to resist temptations, supporting them under their trials, raising them up from their falls, and lifting them up over difficulties insuperable to them so as not one of these can finally fall away or be lost. No one is going to be lost that he has purchased and that he is keeping. Jesus said, I will not lose one of my sheep. Ready to be revealed at the last time. I hope this gives you some excitement today. You know, when you buy someone a gift, say it's for their birthday or for an anniversary, and typically you should buy it more than the day of or one day in advance. That's speaking from experience. Usually you should buy it ahead of time. And when you buy that gift for that person, you're already in possession of it. And it's really already theirs, right? You're guarding over it. You're keeping it for them, but it's theirs. And I don't know about you, but this is why I don't get the gifts very early. Because I have such a hard time having that gift and not giving it to the person. When I get a gift, I want to give it right away. But there's some wisdom in doing it earlier. But it's already theirs. You've gotten it for them. You've paid for it. You're guarding it. You're keeping it for them. But you're also helping keep them and and getting them and bringing them to receive the present. So if it's a birthday party, you plan everything. But you also get them to the birthday party and then you give them the gift. That's what ready to be revealed means. It means that God the Father has already purchased this for you. He already owns it for you. He's already guarding it for you. And he can't wait to give it to you. And it's full possession. And he already told you, I'm going to give it to you. Here's the down payment. And this is, I'm, I'm going to get you there. I've reserved it for you. I have it for you. You're going to get it. And now I am keeping you for it. Jude 24 says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Your exceeding joy? Yes. His exceeding joy? Yes. He's going to present you before his presence with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Paul says, I am absolutely convinced, absolutely confident 
that he which begun a good work in you will complete it, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so that's why he'll say in verse 6, wherein you greatly rejoice. Though now for a season, if need be, you suffer. We're going to suffer for a season. And we'll talk about this as we go forward. But you have something to rejoice in. You have something to hope in. You have, you have a lively hope that this is what God has done for you. This is what God is doing in you. And this is your future. This is your future, children. This is something that you're supposed to look forward to. You want to graduate? Wonderful. You want to go to college and get a degree? Wonderful. You want to get a great job? You want to be married and raise a family? You want to have children? Wonderful. You want to grow old and start getting deformed and losing your hair or it turning gray? Wonderful. Because you have something much greater than that that you're going to. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.